Our theme this morning is Christian worship. And in the spirit and the mood are that glorious quartet rendering of O Worship the Lord. I want us to turn once again to the Gospel of John and verses 19 to 24. The Gospel of John verses chapter 4 and verses 19 to 24. Let's have a moment of prayer. Blessed Lord, we pray thee that thou wilt so eclipse the preacher in the glory of the outshining Christ that we shall be aware of no one here this morning save Jesus only and that seeing our Savior in all the excellency of his glory we shall fall at his feet like Thomas of old and with worshipful hearts declare my Lord and my God because we ask it for his dear name's sake Amen <clears throat> I wonder Christian friend if it has ever occurred to you that God in heaven seeks your worship with all the intensity of his great heart as Jesus Christ sought and found you in your lost estate we read that wonderful statement that we love to preach to the world the son of man is come to seek and to save that which was lost what an utterance that's the whole gospel embodied in a sentence the son of man is come to seek and to save that which was lost and there are thousands of people listening to me today who remember the moment when Jesus sought them and found them and they've ever thanked him that there was such a person in the universe as a seeking savior but with the same intensity in heaven this morning the father sits upon the throne and he looks down into your heart and mine and the truth stands on the plain page of scripture that the father the father seeketh seeketh such to worship him seeketh who remember the words were addressed to the woman of Samaria this sordid woman this woman of shame and evil living this woman who wouldn't even attempt to accompany others to the well but comes alone at a time of the day when everybody else is resting lest she should be observed but the Lord Jesus sought her out the Lord Jesus met her the Lord Jesus saved her caused her to stoop and drink of that living water but even before she had done so the Lord Jesus looked into her eyes and he said these words that go far deeper than many people imagine give me to drink give me to drink do you imagine he only wanted the water that was in the well I think not for even his hunger had been assuaged for you remember when the disciples brought back that food from the village he wouldn't partake of it his language was I have meat that ye know not of my meat is to do the will of him that sent me to finish his work his hunger had gone yes and his thirst had gone why 
Because the water he wanted to drink was the water of this woman's response to the call of the gospel. The water he wanted to drink was the water of devotion and affection and love and worship from this sinful woman. For declared the Savior, the Father seeketh such to worship him. And I think the thing that brings me to my knees more easily than anything else is the wonder of the fact that God Almighty, the creator of the world, the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent one, he who dwells in a light unapproachable, God wants my worship. God longs that I should enter his presence and pour out the gratitude and thanksgiving and adoration of my soul. I thought it fitting in preparation for the commemoration of the death and victory of our Lord Jesus Christ around his table this morning, we should consider together this subject of Christian worship. And so I want to draw your attention to the verses to which I have already pointed out to you. And I want to take very simply an exposition from this passage on Christian worship. And I'm praying that no one here in this audience or listen, listening to me in Radio Land is ever going to challenge their souls again concerning the obligation to worship. You should be a worshipping Christian here, my brother. A worshipping soul. You've come to worship. Primarily to worship. You're listening to the ministry of the Word of God. Yes, that's true. You've come here together for fellowship, that's true, but primarily you've come for worship. And there is no greater worship in all the world than the worship of a corporate body. I know you can worship alone at that radio, but there is no greater and more blessed spot to worship than that which God has indicated the local church gathered together in his presence to worship him in spirit and in truth. Now the amazing thing about it is this, that the worship of God is nowhere actually defined in Scripture. It's described vividly and dramatically in Old and New Testaments, but never actually defined, because nobody can finally restrict worship into a formula. Worship is the whole outgoing and abandonment of a man's life and praise and heart and even substance, as we shall see in a moment. It's nowhere defined, but it's described. Broadly speaking, the Word of God shows that worship is the recognition and acknowledgement of God in His nature, in His attributes, in His ways and claims, whether by the outgoing of the heart in praise and thanksgiving or by deeds done in acknowledgement of His goodness and His love and His graciousness. Whether it is in service, intense and devoted, or whether it is in the outpouring of my substance at his footstool. Worship then is the acknowledgement of God in all that he is in his nature and person and attributes. But even though we cannot define worship, we may learn a good deal about it. And this passage particularly is rich in the exposition of it. And I believe this basis in John 4, 19 to 24 gives us, first of all, the imperatives, imperatives of worship. Secondly, the instructions in worship. And thirdly, the incentives of and for worship. 
Let us look first of all at the imperatives of worship. In verse 23, Jesus looked at this woman and said, Let me tell you, true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And what a mighty utterance that was. There are three or four imperatives to which I would now draw your attention. There is the imperative first of all of relationship. No man can worship the Father unless you can call him Father. True worshippers must worship the Father. Notice it doesn't say God, but the Father. Why the Father? Because in the last analysis only a truly born again soul can worship. The man out in the street today who knows nothing of God as Father may wonder at the great manifestation of the deity and divinity of God and power of God as revealed in creation. And his soul may go out in wonder because he's a creature of eternity. But he cannot worship in this deepest sense of the word until he becomes a child, until he's born into the family of God. The first imperative of worship is relationship. Relationship. God becomes my father when I'm born into the family. And I want to pause and ask you, my friend, listening, whether here or at your radio, are you a child of God? Can you point to the moment when you were born into the family of God? The Bible says, as many as received him, the Lord Jesus Christ, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. You can't worship God unless you're born into his family. You can't worship God until you know what it is to be regenerated by God the Holy Ghost. You can't worship the Father until you can honestly say, Father, Father. Paul tells us in his epistle to the Romans that the Spirit of God witnesses with our spirit that we are the children of God if, if we've been adopted into the family. And we can say, Abba. Father, are you born again, my friend? Do you know what it is to be indwelt by God the Holy Ghost? Can you say with full meaningfulness, Father, Father, and even as you said, your heart warms because God looks down from heaven and says, My child, my child, my son, my daughter. The imperative of relationship. But the second imperative is just as important as the imperative of revelation. They that worship the Father must worship him in spirit or according to the spirit. Not only in the human spirit but in the Holy Ghost. And we cannot worship God until we have God revealed to us. We can't worship somebody we don't know. God must reveal himself to us and he can only do that through the power of the Holy Ghost who indwells us. And so we read such scriptures as this. The Holy Ghost said the Savior shall teach you all things. And bring all things to your remembrance. And again the spirit of truth will guide you into all truth. And still again from the pen of the Apostle Paul. The things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. That's why I pray that men and women who come into this place, brethren and sisters, Calvary family, who come here Sunday by Sunday, should meet with their Lord before they even start their journey churchward. 
Quietly in the presence of God as the book is opened and as the message of God breaks in upon your soul as you breathe the rarefied atmosphere of heaven and as the Spirit of God unfolds the glories of God in Jesus Christ your soul is stirred and you come to worship. Why? Because you've had a revelation of God. A revelation of God. Look at that sixth chapter of Isaiah and see that manifested here is Isaiah with a message of condemnation. In the previous chapters he's condemned right, left and center the people of his days, the priests and the people and those in authority. But he has no conception of his own sin and his own need until presently he has a revelation of God. He sees the Lord high and lifted up. He sees the glory fill the temple and the blaze of God's glory breaks it upon his soul and he says, woe is me. For I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. And he longs for cleansing. He longs for the touch upon his lips of the coal from off the altar. The Spirit of God has revealed to him the wonder of God. You cannot worship unless you're full of the Holy Ghost. You cannot worship until you're consciously filled by the Spirit of the living God. For only he can make God real to you and stir your emotions and heart to pour out to him that which he seeks here this morning with the intensity of his heart for the father seeketh such to worship him the imperative of relationship the imperative of revelation but still further there must be the imperative of reality for true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit according to the Holy Spirit and in truth according to truth. Not only doctrinally sound, not only biblically sound, but that word truth goes even deeper than just the truth in its objective sense. It means in sincerity, it means in reality, it means in integrity, it means truth dwelling in me deeply. Thou desirest truth in the inward parts the psalmist tells us and again this people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips but their heart is far from me and God says I don't want people who merely say what they don't mean I don't want people who talk about devotion but their hearts are far from me I want truth in the inward parts not truth merely on the lips not truth merely in the mind not truth merely in evangelical cliches I want truth in the inward part I want to know reality in worship I want my people to come to me and be so absorbed with me in a sheer reality of worship that they're not conscious of anyone else in the building they're caught up in the act of worship the worship of God Do you know my friend that God even tells us in his word that he never even made us for service service is a byproduct God's first intention in making man at all is that man might find in him his full delight and glorify God forever God made man to worship him to commune with him to meet with him to pour out his affection and love and adoration before him and he longs for reality my beloved friend here this morning I've been challenging my heart in the early hours of this morning that as I come to this pulpit and as I speak to you of worship God might make me intensely real God might take from my life or any one of us any trace of sham 
or hypocrisy or cant or pretense. God make us real as we worship him in spirit and in truth. And if we know anything of the imperative of relationship, if we know anything of the imperative of revelation, if we know anything of the imperative of reality, we shall of necessity know the imperative of reverence. Reverence. A word that's right out of our vocabulary today. In the din and noise of a massive great world and city life. Caught up in the vortex of the machinery of everyday living. We've lost the art of meditation. We've lost the art of stillness. We've lost the art of reverence in the presence of God. And yet listen to the book. They that worship the Father, worship, true worshipers, shall worship Him in spirit and in truth. And the very idea behind worship is according to the real nature of God, without irreverence, without ignorance, without idolatry. Can you imagine my friend being called or summons to the palace of a great potentate or monarch or king or even the President of the United States today, and you're entering in without a very careful preparation of heart and mind, a studying of the laws of etiquette, and a respectful, reverent presentation of yourself and your message and your purpose in the presence of the august person. And if that's true of mere men, what of God? What of God? C.H. Spurgeon once said, Can you imagine my entering into the presence of some great king or potentate and then suddenly seeing a butterfly flit across the room and my distraction such that I chase after the butterfly? Such, he says, are those who enter the presence of God with wandering thoughts, without reality, without sincerity, without true purpose. We come to worship him. And the Bible teaches us holy and reverend is his name. And the Bible teaches us again, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. That word, serve him with godly fear and reverence there, is the service of worship. Coming into his presence with awe and wonder and reverence. Do you know one of my greatest longings in prayer? One of my greatest desires for this great church here at Calvary? Is that we should be characterized by such a reverence, such an awe in the presence of God, that when the stranger outside comes into our midst, when our visiting friend steps through those doors, they'll be aware that heaven has touched earth, that God is in this place, that so is his glory manifest and so is his power and presence manifest, that nobody can be but reverent in his presence. There's no talking. There's no jabbering. There's a quiet resting in his presence with bowed head that God might break in upon us, that the reverence of which he is worthy might be given to him from every heart bowed in his presence. The imperatives of worship, Christian worship, relationship, Father, revelation in spirit, reality in truth, 
true worshippers in reverence. But the Bible teaches us also not only the imperatives of worship, but the instructions in worship. And in verse 22 we read, Ye worship ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. And our Savior was cognizant of what this woman was speaking of. For it was to the Jews that the plan of salvation was revealed. And it was to them, the Hebrew people, that instruction concerning worship was given. And if you at your leisure will study that 26th of Deuteronomy that we read together, you will notice that in the act of worship which God commanded from his earthly people, there was a threefold act in worship, a threefold act. First of all, the presentation of property. Secondly, the presentation of person. And thirdly, the presentation of praise. First, the presentation of your property. In verse 10 of Deuteronomy 26, thou shalt set it down. What? The first fruits of the field. That which God had given of the increase of the field, thou shalt set it down before the Lord thy God. The it, here is the property with which the Lord had blessed the worshiper, the first of all as it's called. And I want to remind you, my friend, that when you come to worship, and when we bow just now for the offertory prayer, you were in fact not merely supporting a cause. When you bowed in prayer just now for the offertory prayer, you weren't just throwing a dime into the plate because it was respectable. If you were intelligent in the act you performed, my friend, you were worshipping God. And you can't do that thoughtlessly. You can't do that lightly. You can't do that without reality. You can't do that without revelation. You can't do that without reverence. You can't do that without sacrifice. That's what Paul means when he says, Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God has prospered him. You look back upon your week and you say, Oh God, how have you blessed me? And you recall the week. And you say, God has blessed me in this proportion. Then I set that aside for him. That's God's. That's my act of worship. And I love on a Sunday morning in my quiet time to look back over my week. And to think of all the way God has blessed me and prospered me. The tithe is his. That's his. I can't touch it. That's his. To touch it is to rob God. But there's something more than the tithe. There's the offering. And how has God prospered me? Well, so much. Well, let me lay by in store for him. And as I lay it by, it becomes an act of worship, which I bring to the place of worship, such as this church, the presentation of your property. I wonder if you worship just now. And then secondly, we read this, the presentation of your person. Thou shalt worship before the Lord thy God. Here is the presentation of the body as an act of worship. And I'm so interested to learn that one of the versions for Romans 12, 1 reads like this. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable mode of worship. Every single service should be an act of consecration. Before you leave this place this morning, 
You should lay that life afresh on the altar of God's acceptance and say, Oh God, I've come not only to bring my property. Oh God, I've come to bring my person. Here am I. Take me, spirit, soul, and body. Take me in my totality. Take my talents. Take my time. Take my all. Here I am, Lord, laid before thee an act of worship. An act of worship. But God looks not only for your property and your very person and body. He looks for your praise. I trust that we're going to understand our hymns in a far greater way than we've ever done before. I hope as we open our hymn books and take part in worship or whether we listen to the choir, it's going to be an act of worship. For I notice this, that in verse 10 again, we read this, Thou shalt rejoice in every good thing which the Lord thy God hath given thee. Here is the presentation of praise which is the third aspect of worship. And I read in Hebrews 13, 15, By him therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. That's why God has given us tongues. That's why God has liberated our voices. That's why we can sing. That's why we can make a joyful noise unto the Lord. The evidence of a spirit-filled life is that you can sing and as you express in song to God your worship in the acknowledgement of his nature and person and attributes and excellencies, you worship. A song isn't a fill-in for a program. A hymn isn't just a convenience in a so-called religious service. A hymn should be an act of worship. And every word should count. You should sing it following sentence by sentence, giving worship to God. Christian worship. The imperatives, the instructions. Have you brought your property? Have you brought your person? Have you brought your praise this morning? Perhaps you've never seen it like that before. Oh, may God grant that Christian worship shall have a place in your life it's never had before. But listen, somebody says to me, I somehow feel stone cold when I come to a service like this. And it takes a little while before I can warm up to give God what he deserves. My friend, that's because you've never learned the true incentives to worship. The true incentives to worship, the Bible tells us, are three. True worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. My friend, that word seeketh is sufficient to answer my need. To know that God Almighty in heaven should think of a tiny little insignificant speck as Stephen Olford and long that from his heart worship should ascend to heaven is a big enough incentive to me. But I've learned something and learned it with a new preciousness. Listen to this. Do you know, my friend, that the word worship Frequently used in Old and New Testament literally means to kiss. To kiss. How wonderful that the Holy Spirit should use this tender and beautiful figure to illustrate worship. To kiss. To kiss. The kiss is the expression of the heart's desire and devotion and delight. When you kiss a person tenderly, your little child, your wife, your loved one, you do so because of desire. Listen to the language of the psalmist. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that which I will seek after, 
that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord. I'm coming to worship because of desire. I've come into his presence because I just want to. That's worship. But not only desire, devotion. The kiss is the expression of devotion. I have set my affection to the house of my God, said David. And again in the psalm, Lord, I have loved thy habitation and the house and the place wherein thine honor dwelleth. And his devotion to the house of God and to the person of God was such that nothing would keep him from worship. Worship is an expression of tenderness and love and kiss and desire and devotion. One other thought, the kiss is the expression not only of the heart's desire and devotion, but of delight. Listen to this, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Blessed are they that dwell in thy house, they shall be praising thee forever. Delight, I've come because I'm glad. I'm glad it's the Lord's day. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice in it and be glad. Why? It's an opportunity to lay aside all the preoccupations of the week and come with desire and devotion and delight into the presence of God. No wonder Jesus said, true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father seeketh such to worship him. Are you a true worshiper this morning? Will you resolve in God's presence in the light of the instruction you being given that no longer will you be a casual worshiper but a true worshiper in the house of God or wherever, wherever you're found on a Sunday morning? Let us pray. Will you ask the Lord right now to forgive you for your shame, your pretense, your unreality and insincerity? And will you say, oh God, make me a true worshiper? You've taught me what worship really means. I've never seen it like this before. Henceforward, I'm going to worship you as I've never worshipped you before. And if you want further instruction and help on what this really means and on the meaning of true membership or how to really become a child of God in order that you might qualify for worship, would you come to our evening service tonight and particularly see me in the instruction meeting to follow where I meet all those who want to get to know God and to go on with God. Lord, hear the prayers that are sent to thee and seal with thy Holy Spirit every true response from our hearts because we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. This is David Olford. You have been listening to a message from God's Word delivered by my late father, Dr. Stephen F. Olford, who went to be with the Lord in the year 2004. If you wish to learn about our online resources or learning events at the Institute for Biblical Preaching, our web address is olford.org. That's O-L-F-O-R-D dot org. You also may want to benefit from our online video training on expository preaching, which can also be found on our website. Thank you so much for listening.